Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 167 for November 1st, 2009. Got a couple of notes to begin with. If you haven't yet received your email copy of the show rundown, well, I don't know what happened to it. I know that they went out from the service that sends them at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. I'm recording this week's program at 9.20 in the morning on Saturday, and mine hasn't arrived yet. Well, one of mine has arrived. I have mine sent to three different addresses so that they'll take different routes to get to me, and only one of them arrived. So it would appear that the email service is working properly, but it would also appear that there's some problem between there and at least two of my addresses. So if you didn't receive one, that's likely why. Also, looking ahead, there will be no program on November 22nd, closed for Thanksgiving, and no program on December 27th. I usually take the week between Christmas and New Year's off, and I'll be doing that again this year. So I'll be back the first week of January with a slightly new look and feel for the TechBiter Worldwide website. Last week, I wrote, needless to say, EASDER1E.co.uk is not owned by Microsoft. Instead, it's registered as being owned by a Patricia Laycock, 12 Low Eggborough Road, number Google, DN140PJ, United Kingdom. That attracted a question. In one of your future casts, will you explain how you found the actual owner? Yes, I will. I use a different address this week, one that provides perhaps a better illustration. By the time I checked EASDER1E.co.uk address, by the time I checked it, it had been shut down. It was being used for a fraudulent Windows update. In other words, except for the registration information, there really wasn't very much to see. I started with a fresh example of the same message this week. This one offered a link to nniujo.eu. The top-level domain suggests the European Union, but who actually is the registrant, and where is the website? Well, normally I start with Domain Dossier. It's a function at Central Ops. I ask it for all the information available. If you'd like a link to Central Ops, there is one on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Central Ops returns a lot of information, far more than what's really needed to determine the overall status of the domain. I'll include it all on the website, but here, essentially, is what I look at. I checked the domain who is record. The registrant was not disclosed. I'll tell you why in a moment. So next, I scroll down to the network who is record. This will give me an idea of where the site is actually hosted, where the machine that the website is running on is physically located. And I found that it's running on a service called Xspeed that's located at 537-18 Bangbidong, Seishogu, Seoul, South Korea. Not a very likely location for a Microsoft website. Then I took a quick look at the traceroute results and found that we could not reach the site. That suggested that it had been taken down already. And Domain Dossier also runs a port scan on the commonly used ports. It told me there was nothing at port 21, which is used for FTP, nothing at port 25, which is used for email, or at port 80, which is used for serving websites. 
And what about that registrant business, the not disclosed part? Well, that's because the European Union registrar uses a CAPTCHA to ensure that the query is being posed by a real person. In this case, Central Ops cannot discern the registered name of the owner, which will probably be false anyway, but it can tell me where to look. It gave me the address of the European Union registrar. So that could have been the end of the road, but I decided to go ahead and take a look at the European Union's registrar. And a few things stand out in the European Union Who is result. First, there was the date. I did the research on the 25th of October. The domain name had been registered on the 24th of October, just one day earlier. Now, every site has to be new at some time in its history, but it is extremely unlikely that a brand new site will be used to distribute any legitimate security updates. And then there's the question of the address. 13953 Southwest 68th Street, Brussels, Belgium. Now, 13953 Southwest 68th Street just doesn't look like a European address. I've never been to Brussels, but a street address like that one just shouts United States to me. Google Earth agreed. Brussels has streets with names like Bergstraat and Elkstraat. No 13953 Southwest 68th Street. Not in Brussels. On the other hand, the telephone country code at least matches the claimed country. 32 is Belgium, and that's what was in the record. Microsoft is a large company with a substantial legal department. I'm pretty sure that said legal department would not allow the use of a Hotmail address. And when it comes to filling out registrations, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't type in all lowercase. The instant I see a message such as the one that I've used for this example and the one you can see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I know it's a fraud. I know that because Microsoft does not notify users of anything like this by email. For that reason, the entire exercise was unnecessary. But sometimes the fraudulent nature of a message isn't clear, and that's when the ability to use such tools as Central Ops and the various registrars around the world, Google Maps, Google Search, and Google Earth can come in pretty handy. I've said that Windows 7 is fast, and indeed it is. But I've also said Ubuntu Linux is faster, and it is. I've also said how slow Vista was. During the two years that I used Vista, startup could take five minutes or more, and sometimes the shutdown process ran for more than 15 minutes. Normal was more like two or three minutes to start up and five minutes or so to shut down. The two operating systems I use regularly now are Windows 7 and Ubuntu. They are both much faster. I decided to stage a little drag race. Here's how I set it up. The notebook computer I use has both operating systems on it. When the machine boots, the Grub bootloader offers a choice of operating systems. So that became my starting point. I was looking for how long it took the operating system to become usable, to load a word processor program, and to type the words, Hello World. The second part of the test was how long it took from the time I selected shutdown until the power was actually off. And I recorded the time test. I like to talk from time to time about how quick Linux starts up compared to any Windows operating system. So I'm booting my laptop right now, and it's loading the Grub Loader, which is going to offer me two operating systems, Ubuntu and Windows 7. So I'm going to select Ubuntu, and I'm going to press the Enter key now. Starting up thinking about that. There's the Ubuntu splash screen.
I'm going to time this to see how fast I can be into a word processing program. Unlike Windows, I'm going to have to type my username for Ubuntu, so it's asking me for that. Okay, I've typed that, now it wants my password. It's continuing to start up. Windows gets a little bit of an advantage here because it won't ask me for my username. It'll already know that. Okay, I've got an operating system running, and I'm going to select a word processor. I have a word processor screen open. I have typed, hello, world. How much time was that? Okay, now I'm going to close that document. I'm not going to save it. And I'm going to reboot. Now here's a place where Linux really shows off. I'm going to tell the operating system I want to shut down. It has shut down already. It's done. <laughs> okay, so now we are rebooting. This is probably the most time-consuming part of the process. Waiting for the computer itself to go through its BIOS checks and get to the grub loader. Okay, here we go. Now it's got Windows 7 selected as the default. I'm going to press Enter now. Windows 7 is starting. I see the starting Windows screen. I'm still waiting to be able to do something. I'm still waiting to be able to do something. Ah, here we go. It wants my password. I don't have to type a username here, but I do have to type my password. It's the same as on the Linux system. Okay, and it's starting. Okay, it's up and running. I've still got uh, an indication that it's doing a lot of things, but I'll see if I can start a program. I should be able to. And I want to look for Word. Word is starting. Now, if you've used Vista, it's clear that this is a lot faster than Vista was. Okay, we're up. We're ready. I can type, hello world. That's actually pretty impressive, but it's still slower than under Linux. Now, I'm going to go ahead and close the Word document that I'm creating and not save anything. And I'm going to ask the machine to shut down, starting now. Logging off, shutting down. Lots faster than Vista. It's done. But still, not as fast as Linux. The difference between Windows 7 and Ubuntu are significant, but they're not as profound as they would be had I run a similar test with Vista. Here are the times that I obtained. These are taken from the recording. For Windows 7, startup time was 1 minute, 26 and a half seconds. 
That's the time it took for Windows to load, become sufficiently stable that I could load a word processor and type the words, Hello World. Ubuntu was about 25% faster. It took just slightly over a minute, one minute and two hundredths of a second. And Ubuntu was at a bit of a disadvantage here because I had to type my username. That took probably a second. As far as shutdown went, Windows 7 certainly beats the five minutes that Vista took. It shut down in 17 seconds. But Ubuntu shut down in one and a half seconds. Although it did take about 25% more time to start Windows, open Word, and type Hello World, that difference, 26 seconds, is really pretty insignificant. The Windows shutdown can take considerably longer than what I've shown here because Windows installs updates as part of its shutdown process. When that happens, I've seen Windows take three or four minutes sometimes to shut down, but I don't recall that process ever taking longer than that. So how's Windows 7 working out for you if you've installed it? Most of the people I've heard from who are using Windows 7 like it, particularly those who have upgraded from Vista. But not everybody. It's not uncommon for savvy users to wait for Service Pack 1 to show up when Microsoft rolls out a new operating system. But this time, that's probably not the best course of action. Lots of computers are sold in the fourth quarter. I described last week one that I bought for use here at home. Many more will be holiday gifts, and they will all come with Windows 7. The big question for a lot of people is whether to upgrade an existing computer. That depends on how comfortable you are with the implications of an operating system upgrade. This is not a step to be taken lightly, and it is one that will require you to do some homework. I heard from one listener, Chuck Roderick, who described his experience this way. He says, I recently took the plunge and installed Windows 7. It really wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. I installed it on my Dell XPS 420, which was running Vista Home. I did all of my homework and made sure that I had installed all Windows updates that were needed and backed up my files just in case. I installed the 32-bit system since it was an overlay install, and off we went. I had no problems whatsoever with the install and just thought I'd write and tell you and the other listeners my experience. It took about two hours for the process to be completed, and with that said, I wish Microsoft would employ a little bit of graphic entertainment for those who sat diligently by the computer ready to troubleshoot at the first sign of a problem. I got the family pack, which is for three computers under one roof. I have two and a spare now. And for the price, wow. This is the first time I have ever done the upgrade to Windows this early from the release date. Usually I wait with patience for all the horror stories to surface from the testers and reviewers who run the beta tests, and this time there were very few and of little concern about the OS. That's the words of Chuck Roderick. That is not the universal experience. A friend of mine, who definitely is a tech-savvy person, upgraded his HP notebook from Windows Vista, and he has had some significant problems with the installation. My preference, even if an in-place upgrade is possible, is to perform a fresh installation. That's almost always the path with the greatest opportunity for success. On the other hand, it doesn't really hurt to do an in-place upgrade. Just keep in mind that if it doesn't work right, you may have to go back and do the full upgrade. (sighs) Farewell, keyboard. My favorite keyboard, a Microsoft Natural Media keyboard, was wearing out. The arrow keys were sticking. No matter how much I cleaned the mechanical parts of the assembly, I couldn't get any improvement. I even tried a judicious application of WD-40. No change. So I bought a similar keyboard, Microsoft's Natural Ergonomic 4000. 
It's slightly different from the old keyboard, but that slight difference is enough to toss my fingers into a tizzy. The most significant changes involve the insert and delete keys. Neither is now where I expect it, and I'm constantly hitting one of them when I want either the home or the end key. But some of the keys have changed in size, too, which means that the letters aren't quite where my fingers expect them to be. Now I often get an I when I'm expecting a U. The enter and shift keys are smaller, too, and for some reason, even though that makes them smaller targets, for some reason I hit enter rather frequently when all I'm trying to hit is the shift key to get a capital letter. You'll get used to it, I suppose, but you may see more than the usual selection of typos while I retrain my fingers. On the plus side, the Microsoft IntelliPoint software that runs the keyboard has many more features than the previous version. Among my favorite, the ability to turn off the caps lock key. This is a detestable holdover from the days of manual typewriters. It is my least favorite key. It's a key that gets pressed by accident, and I find myself typing in all capital letters. I don't like that. Now I can turn it off. Previously, I used a registry hack to do that, so now I don't have to. Windows 7 got to show off a bit when I loaded the software. A few seconds after the setup program started to load, I received a message from Windows 7. This application cannot be loaded, it told me, because it does not operate properly under this version of the operating system. The message then provided a link to the location where I could download the new version. So the installation was a breeze, and when I later plugged the keyboard in, all of the special features worked just as expected. Now, if I could only accelerate the process of updating my fingers... This is going to be difficult because the Microsoft Natural Media keyboard at the office is still working just fine, and I'll have to switch back and forth between the two. In short circuits, Ubuntu 9.10 has slipped onto my notebook computer. Last week I mentioned the upgrade, Ubuntu 9.10, which was to become available late last week. It did, and now it's on my notebook computer and appears to have brought some worthwhile improvements. I would be able to tell you more if the download had gone faster. Those who download new versions of Ubuntu during the first few days of any new release will often have to put up with modem-like download speeds. In this case, the result was worth the delay. When it comes to upgrades, Microsoft still has a lot to learn from Ubuntu. When I started the computer and asked Ubuntu to check for program updates, it told me that a new version of the operating system was available. I could perform a standard update or a full upgrade. I decided on the full upgrade, which of course is free. The updater started enumerating all of the new files that would be needed. As it turned out, the number of files needed was quite large, well over a thousand. Under normal circumstances, the download would have taken perhaps 15 to 20 minutes, but downloads, as I said, are always slow the first few days after a new Ubuntu release. After initially suggesting the download would take 10 hours or more, the update process settled on 2 to 3 hours. That was correct, and a couple of hours later, the download ended. Then the actual update process started, and by the time the upgrades had been installed and the system had rebooted, it was well past my bedtime. When I boot the computer, Grub still shows version 9.04, but I had expected that. I'll need to modify the text that the bootloader displays. The boot process has changed for the better. Instead of having to type a username, now you get a Windows-like list of available users, and all you need to do is select one and then provide the appropriate password. My recommendation continues to be that if you are at all comfortable with the idea of creating a dual-boot system, installing Ubuntu along with whatever version of Windows you're using is a good idea.
Oh, and by the way, if you're running an Intel Mac, you can do it there, too. Sanford Wallace, name from the past. Sanford Wallace, accused of massive spamming, hit with huge fines. He then goes to court, promises to reform, walks out of court, continues to earn the title Spam King. What does it take to put someone like this in a place where he cannot continue to flout the law? In the latest trial involving Sanford Wallace, a California court awarded Facebook $711 million after finding that Wallace gained access to users' accounts and sent messages that claimed to be from them. In addition to the judgment, the judge in San Jose referred Wallace to the U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution for criminal contempt of court. It's about time. In 2008, MySpace won a $230 million judgment against Wallace because of similar activities. Has he paid? (laughs) Of course not. Two years before that, he was fined $4 million because he ran a scam operation that infected computers with spyware. Here's hoping that good old Sanford Wallace is sentenced to spend some time behind bars. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.